Welcome back to another Cardinals Off Day and another Cardinals Off Day podcast. As uh, Ben and I sit here uh, with the second game of the Braves doubleheader going on, the Cardinals are 36 and 35, so they're on pace to win uh, 82 games. Uh, Ben, happy Father's Day to you. Happy Father's Day to you, Ben. And I saw a tweet uh, from the St. Louis Cardinals bullpen uh, that I think expresses a a nice Father's Day sentiment about game one of the doubleheader that Paul Goldschmidt and Adam Wainwright are the two most dad-like Cardinals players. So it's very fitting that they had excellent games on Father's Day in the first half of the doubleheader, and I thought that was a very appropriate observation. <laughs> yeah, very much so, very much so. It's been a good day for dads all around, and we're hoping this uh, second game will uh, will go that way as well. So, uh, well, it's been uh, just about a week, I think, since we uh, were last here. Uh, so, Ben, I'm curious, anything you feel like you've learned in the last week? Um, what I have learned is that it's... Uh, something that I think we all kind of knew is that if Arenado and Goldschmidt uh, are not hitting, uh, the team is really going to struggle. You know, these are the the two cornerstones of the offense and Arenado had not really gone into a funk uh, yet. And uh, even though they were able to defeat the Marlins while he was in a funk uh, before that uh, it was, it got pretty ugly for that lineup when you didn't have Goldschmidt and Arenado uh, providing much uh, there in the middle of the lineup uh, for a, a stretch there as if the bad pitching weren't enough, but then, you know, the, the offensive production uh, made it even more difficult to watch the team during the slide. And I think that can, has contributed uh, to a lot of the hand wringing and the sky is falling assessment of the team here in June. Yeah, yeah. No, I would uh, I would agree. Uh, in terms of what I learned, um, I've kind of continued to become aware that uh, Adam Wainwright has kind of reinvented himself a little bit from even the previous version of late period Adam Wainwright that we'd seen. And so uh, I dug into some numbers today, and he had a really good game uh, er- earlier today, and this kind of inspired me to dig into some of these he struck, I believe he struck out 11 in the game. Um, and uh, so I did some digging and he's actually, he's up to a 21.1% strikeout rate, Wainwright is, which is his best since 2018 and would be the, the fourth best of his career. Now, strikeout league strikeout rate numbers, of course, have risen during that time as well. So I took a look and his, um, it's still very good for him. He's, uh, he's in the 35th percentile of, of strikeout rate for pitchers, which is, is, you know, obviously not high, but we know he's not a, not a strikeout guy. And that's, you know, I think for Adam Wainwright, this point in his career actually pretty good. And it's actually the best that he's been or it matches where he was at in uh, 2016. So um, I feel like, you know, we sort of, uh, you know, after around the time of that, uh, I, th- I feel like it was kind of around and right after the Achilles injury kind of since then we've largely seen, um, you know, this kind of pitch to contact version of Adam Wainwright that was, uh, you know, w- would would really struggle. And I know he's talked about being pretty close to retiring, um, you know, in a couple of those points. And I think, you know, 2017, 2018, maybe 2019 there. Um, 
he's had a little bit of resurgence and I just think he's doing it a little bit differently um, at this point. And uh, he's at a, he's got a 4.23 fielding independent pitching, which is just a tick above league average for this year. So uh, I've really kind of changed my assessment of Adam Wainwright. I, I felt for several years, he was, you know, basically a, a number five kind of starter. And of course I, I love him. I love having him on the team. I was always grateful for what he got, but I was just kind of had given up on the idea that, you know, he could be uh, a contributor much more beyond that in terms of his on the field results. And, uh, you know, if, if, if he's a, you know, league average FIP, he's, you know, I think we could call him something more like a, a number three starter. And he's done this for a little bit of, of time now. And I kind of buy into the underlying numbers of it. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to accept him and, and have an expectation of him at that level. He's not a staff ace, but um, you know, I don't think he's a back end of the rotation guy uh, either. And, and I really like what he's been doing. So um yeah, and it's really good when you can get a quality start from him on the road. Though I don't know if Atlanta counts as a road game officially for Adam Wainwright. Um, <laughs> That's but uh, he is he is a league averages pitcher, and you know this is something that that I have always found fascinating since I started uh, commenting at Viva Albertos far too long ago, and then writing for the blog. Um, and there was a, a post that I wrote that it kind of piqued my interest. And it was many years ago and Joe Strauss, it was when Jaime Garcia was young and, and Joe Strauss and, 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 and a potential prospect said something along the lines of, you know, I don't know if Jaime Garcia is a number five pitcher or something like that. And, um, and it caused me to think, you know, we throw away, throw around these terms and it's, you know, this guy has the chance to be a top of the rotation pitcher right? or his ceiling is a number two pitcher, you know, which right. means he is only one of the top 60 pitchers in baseball, right? right? Like, <laughs> right. you know, and, and kind of the line year to year between 60 and 30, say, or 40 and 20. Um, but then also you'll see people be like, well, he's like a number three pitcher. And see, growing up, I always thought like that was good. Um, and it's not that it's not good. It's just, it's average. It's, you know, all of these pitchers, if you put them together, he is, here he is, he's number three starter, which means there are two worse and two better. And on the St. Louis Cardinals right now, there are two way worse, right? There's John Gant, who's one of the worst pitchers in baseball. Oh, well, on the Cardinals, there's quite uh, yeah, a few yeah, worse. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Oviedo, who's, uh, you know, you take the bad with the good. He's developing. There might be something there. There is promise with Oviedo, right? But he's, he's not, no one would describe him as a, as a number three, let alone higher. And so, you know, I think that there is a part of Cardinals fandom where if you were like, you know, Adam Wainwright, it's really great that he's turned into a number three starter. And Mike Schultz might be among them, Ben. Uh, he, he might be like, are you kidding me? He's an ace. He's going to give us eight innings uh, in the NLDS, regardless <laughs> of how many base runners he allows, you know, that, that type of thing. And that was a terrible Mike Schultz. Uh, impersonation but I, no, I, I liked it actually I don't I, it, the, for the enthusiasm alone I liked I liked and, it I and, and so I I agree with you I it's been a a pleasant turn of events because like he was he was okay last year and last year I just I don't know what to think about what anyone did uh, right. in 2020 because it was only a 
uh, 60 or fewer if you're the Cardinals game season and then the postseason was its own weird thing. And so, uh, you know, it was something that was not really a major league season. And so it's been very good to see him. And we've talked about this, uh, you know, when we've gotten together here since uh, we both were fully vaccinated, that it almost feels like the 2020 season allowed Wainwright and Yachty to like recharge their batteries for the full yeah. Uh, for a full season for the first time in a while, uh, yeah. only playing that abbreviated schedule. And so, uh, you know, Yachty's hitting has fallen off a little bit, but I think his, you know, his throwing, he caught another base runner today on a 74 mile an hour Wainwright curveball, which was one of those plays that just kind of makes you smile because it was so ridiculous. Like yeah. there are many catches in the league who do not even throw that. You, you know yeah. what I mean? And, and and he's gunning down the runner uh, this late in his career, and well, it then, just, and it, then a couple innings later, he tried to gun down a runner and let a run come in from third, and you mm-hmm. could almost hear Molina shouting, "I am a god!" as he yeah. threw the second yeah, to get yeah. out. So, yeah, his confidence is, is certainly high. Well, yes, he has that uh, you know that unique uh, mental outlook. Some might call it a psychosis. Uh, yes. That that makes him very good, very long into life uh, at the highest level of of the professional sport that he plays. But yeah, uh, in and looking at it, them, is a, it is a trait shared by one hundred percent of Hall of Fame uh, inductees. Yes, of yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, but it's been it's been interesting and a and a pleasant thing, uh, you know, to see both of them come back and and play well. Um, and Wainwright really. You know, again, I'll probably get some negative feedback here, but, you know, Wainwright kind of coming up to the ceiling of of your expectations for him as a number three starter at this point in his career. And I I don't mean any disrespect from that. So don't get any mean mentions uh, about me to him on Twitter, because those will go in his mind because he has that strange uh, Jordan you know, and I took that personally uh, mindset yeah. as well, uh, but it's just where he where he was and where he is coming into the season. You hope he can be like a number three level starter, and he's been a number three level starter who every once in a while will give you one of those vintage top of the rotation starts uh, like he yeah. did today, and it's been really fun to watch. Yeah, and I think, you know, we we do use shorthand like, you know, number three or whatever in the rotation. And yeah, to be clear, number three pitcher in a rotation is a super valuable player on your team. And if there are legitimate number three type guys available at the trade deadline, those are the kind of guys that teams like the Cardinals will be lining up for and paying handsomely for. So it's very nice. One of the, you know, at a point where it doesn't feel like a lot of things are necessarily breaking the the Cardinals way this year. Um, Yeah. His performance. And as you mentioned, Molina's has to be pretty high as well. So, so pivoting off of that, I guess going from talking about Adam Wainwright to talking about putting sticky foreign substances on the baseball, uh, Ben, um, I was reminded actually tonight when I turned on the Sunday night game that this is actually the last game that will happen before these sort of new uh, rules or new implementation of the rules, however you want to look at it from Major League Baseball, uh, are put into place. Uh, what's What are your thoughts just kind of in general on what's going on with sticky substances, either league-wide or, or specifically to the Cardinals? The 
the thing that all it always comes back to for me is the 2006 World Series. And uh, Tony Larusa, I have long found to be fascinating uh, as a manager and a figure in baseball. And he did many things that drove me nuts. He did a, does a lot of things that I like. Um, and one of the things that really surprised me was in the 2006 World Series when uh, Rogers was clearly, Kenny Rogers was clearly mm-hmm. cheating, clearly cheating with right. pine tar. And he pitched very well against the Cardinals, uh, you know, after the Cardinals had uh, in the minds of many people come in and stolen the first game. And you're sitting there on the TV and this was really even before HD. And it was still obvious, you know, <laughs> like right. it was before you could see every little pour and everything else uh, on the players, every, every sweat droplet and spittle bit coming out of their mouths. And I remember just being like, why is La Russa, who is one of the most dramatic in-game, you know, managers in terms of gamesmanship and doing all that type of stuff, completely silent about this because it's, right. it's as plain as day. And if you can see it on television, the batters can see it. You know, the Cardinals dugout knows what's going on. And La Russa just didn't really get into it, didn't really engage in it. And, after he did that, it became very, very clear to me <laughs> that the St. Louis Cardinals are all cheating as well. Um, you know, <laughs> like uh, they are all on the same page uh, in terms of getting a little extra grip to make their pitchers their pitches do what they want. But uh, with all of the discourse that has followed this move by Major League Baseball, it has actually caused me to, to rethink my stance just a little bit as well. Uh, because something else that La Russa always put the highest priority on uh, was how you pitch and how you hit batters on purpose uh, in retaliation for things. And so one of the things that La Russa would always get really upset about is pitchers who threw up and in and, and were not good enough to do it because you can end careers doing that. And then the offshoot of that is that when the Cardinals hit someone on purpose, it was always like in the ass area because that's where they have meat. It was never up high. That was completely unacceptable. And and that was one of the kind of unwritten rules that La Russa uh, I think believed in, and I don't necessarily think is league wide, but so I also believe that Larusa probably is okay with a degree of stickiness being allowed, uh, just for safety and control, uh, in terms of the batters. And so we know that this has been going on for at least 15 years and it's been going on longer than that, right? Like Troy Percival, uh, taught the cl- the road clubhouse manager who Adam Wainwright ordered sticky stuff from how to cook it before he went to the Detroit Tigers, right? And probably right. shared his recipe with Kenny Rogers to bring this full circle. Um, and so to me, I feel like Major League Baseball, like Manfred is so incompetent and terrible that he does not have an office or even contractors in major league baseball uh, that are keeping in touch with clubs, keeping up on the latest statistical analysis and seeing what are the issues that are coming. And, you know, the focus on spin rate, I mean, it, it was in, I think 2018 when Eno Saris did the interview with Trevor Bauer that really 
opened all of this up. Right. And so they have had, they even had this huge extended off season, right? Like in 2020, where Manfred was just picking fights with the players union and, and negotiating in bad faith and, you know, doing the things that the owners hired him to do instead of doing something like, Oh, the spin rate and sticky stuff is out of control. We are going to use the 60 games in 2020 to get a baseline. And then we're going to ban it in the off season and we're going to come back and away we go. And instead they let this fester. They send out this preseason memo then West comes out and goes off on Gallegos out of nowhere, and Mike Schilt gave his great rant. And now here we are. We've had about a month's worth of discourse about baseball, about how everyone's cheating again, completely putting a black eye uh, in, on the public perception of the game in the middle of the return from COVID season. And I just can't imagine being that incompetent at my job as Rob Manfred to basically yeah. – give people a reason to badmouth the game that I'm supposed to promote to make my boss's money. And it just, it's, it's stupid to me the way that they have handled it. It's just so ham handed. It's really Bud Selig esque. It's, it's, yeah. it, it is, it is. I, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything that you've said. I think that it's been, I think it's been handled badly. I think the fact that it's being implemented in the middle of the season for something that everyone knows has been going on. And for at least the last two or three years, it's been widely talked about that. Oh, this has accelerated. And this is something we have to address now. I agree with you. That's, that's just really poorly managed at the same time. I feel like this, this has just been such a mess for so unbelievably long. I mean, consider the fact that in baseball, the 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 pitchers are allowed to take out a rosin bag to okay it's it's 2021 okay and and batters use pine tar to get grip on the bat like <laughs> we're i mean what on earth is going on we're use it's like 19th century technology is all that the game has officially addressed in terms of gripping the the two tools that are used in the actual gameplay so this problem you know goes back a super super long way and then of course you have the 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 ways that that has been manipulated since forever and and most recently you know it sounds like the whole the sunscreen and rosin thing is a pretty common thing you get the sense of the last i don't know 20 years or so that's become you know pretty yeah. common and um pine tar too pine tar too right. uh, also very common uh and so i no i i i hear what you're saying but i also feel like baseball looked the other way um, and I don't know how many folks who are listening, probably quite a few who have who have handled a major league baseball and compared it to, you know, the ball you used in the little league or in particular high school. I, we had more raised seams uh, with the balls we used in high school. The major league ball is absolutely nothing like the ball that you used in high school with more raised seams. It's it's much smoother. The seams are much lower and the, the for a hundred years, this yes. league was paying one family to provide magic mud from a secret <laughs> creek bed to rub up the field. Okay, yes. you cannot overstate how horrible and and ancient the technology is that's been used for forever. So, I, I guess what I'm saying, Ben, is to me, like, is this being handled badly? Yes, but I think this is a rip off the band aid moment. 
And I think that, you know, it could have, maybe they could have eased the bandaid off a little bit better, but I, I think it's playing out more or less the way it was always going to when they had this, you know, vague rule about doctoring the ball that basically had not been changed since they officially outlawed the spitball in what I believe 1920, 1919. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, that's so basically in a hundred years, they hadn't dealt with this. I think they kind of had to rip the bandaid off. It's just ugly arguments on all sides. And I think the problem too is like, you know, things can be true on both sides. You know yeah. what I mean? So, so you have, you know, pitchers of course talk about, you know, they need to get a better grip on the ball. You know, that's undeniably true. Now that said the like, well, how good does your grip on the ball, you know, need to be? Yeah. It, it needs to be good enough to control it. Yes. You know, does it need to be good enough for you to throw a, you know, 3000 RPM, uh, you know, well, thing fastball that's, that's debatable. I don't know that you need a substance that gets you quite to that level. Um, and, you know, same with like the Tyler Glass now, you know, thing. And, and, you know, he's saying, well, you know, I had to grip the ball harder and it, you know, cause, you know, maybe more likely, you know, for injury. And and I've seen, you know, kind of doctors and, you know, kinesthetic scientists weigh in and say, well, yes, that's true. You know, you grip the ball mm-hmm. harder. It's going to cause that. But also like, well, that that's not the only way you can throw a baseball too. <laughs> and so and, and, you know, maybe guys that have grown up throwing it that way, there is going to be some more injury for them as they back off on that. But ultimately, maybe that's what needs to happen just because it seems like this sort of, you know, especially the like spider tack, uh, oh, yeah, induced kind of stuff is just insane. And you absolutely can't have that. And see, I come down. What's amazing to me is that Mike Schilt, uh, who is a thoughtful guy and very in the know, Right. Like, I think we all agree with that. Uh, But who in the grand scheme of Major League Baseball is a middle manager. Right. Right. And after the West Gallegos uh, situation where Schilt just went through the roof, which I really enjoyed. um, I really enjoy when a manager or a coach goes to bat for a player. Um, And in particular, in that situation where West is doing whatever he's doing. Um, But then Schilt gives this post-game rant that's really good. It also is this just completely reasonable, level-headed approach of, yeah, get rid of this super stuff. Let them use the stuff they've been using for 30 years, which is uh, rosin and sunscreen and pine tar. And that seems to be a sentiment that is reflected uh, with a lot of the players, too, who are like, yeah, I mean, you know, they need to be able to grip the ball. I'm not a lunatic here. You know, the batter, right. the batters are saying that. And, um, and frankly, if I were digging into the batter's box against a guy who can throw the ball 100 miles an hour, I would want him to have some idea where that's going <laughs> or, or a right. good idea of where that's going, right? Right. And but, we, but, even, but even Schilt's kind of, you know, more reasoned approach there, I, I, I think that's still problematic. I mean – even even if you just have some you know a mixture of sunscreen and rosin or you have uh pine tar and everything i mean the stuff that adam wainwright bought from this you know angels clubhouse guy it was basically a formulation of a couple different kinds of rosin yeah. and a couple other things that he's like lab creating you know you're still you're still having guys concocting varying levels of stuff i think you know, the more accurate fix would be to have a, a like league approved substance. I was just about to say, if it were yeah. me, I would hire Bubba 
and I would yeah. make jars and I would send the jars sealed. This is yeah. what you can use. Yeah. And uh, we're going to keep each team gets it. It's the same exact stuff for every team. Right. That way it's a completely level playing field across uh, all of baseball. And uh, you can use it. And we are going to sample like 20 balls that a pitcher has thrown a game because they can afford to do that. I mean, what's the average lifespan of a major league baseball, like 12 pitches or something like that. Oh, I'd be surprised uh, if it's that. Oh, it's, it's probably lower. I'm probably going yeah. from something like, you know, 20 years ago, some number I heard, but it's, it's, it's a, let's just say it's right. about 10 pitches. You've got, you know, well over 200 a game, just sample or however many baseballs you want to sample. And if there's spider tack, Every pitcher who pitched in that game, you know, it doesn't have to be individualized. Uh, you know, just have it be. Every pitcher is going to be suspended for 10 games. And that's a little bit draconian. But then you you get rid of the high-end stuff, which, again, Eno Saras and his reporting has covered. That's the stuff that makes the difference. You know, the other stuff is is a de minimis improvement in terms of spin rate. Right. And, but you have to yeah, you have to get in there and, and draw a line, you know, because yes. like the, the stuff. And again, if we believe Adam Wainwright's kind of self-reporting on this, you know, and he owned up to, yeah, I bought I bought this stuff. Yeah, I tried using it. You know, it didn't really work for me. So, you know, there's and, and we know just from reporting too. there's varying. I mean, I, I believe there are guys that are really using very little that basically yeah. are just you know, getting their hand wet and using the rosin bag. It sounds like there definitely are guys that do that. There's guys that know, well, I've got a little sunscreen on me and that'll kind of add a little something too. And, and so some of that's like personal preference, but so yeah, I guess you just kind of, but on the other hand, they did have a limit set. The limit was you can use the rosin bag, you know? So yeah, like, but they've, it, it, but they, they looked the other way and allowed it to happen for so long and it became right. but, but, so. And that's what I'm saying. They, they did, but so now is just the rip the bandaid off moment. Well, but. Like, we let this get out of control. We we have to draw a new line. They've probably drawn it in not the best place they could have and not the best way. But I feel like I, I, I guess to me, just all of, when people are you know so critical of the way that they did this, I kind of come back to like, well, like what's the better way to do this? And I think there there are there are somewhat better ways, but I think it would have been more or less the same. Yeah, you know. But it so to me it. When you have a player like Zach Gallon saying, yeah, the Marlins had it institutionalized, like it's literally the organization saying, hey, you're going to have to use this stuff. Right. You know, you need to learn how. Right. Like this is much, that, that is, to me is very different from steroids where it was just kind of look the other way, let the guys do what they're going to do. Right. Um, but the real reason that they did it this way is there's a rule on the books and they went in to enforce the rule as written so that they yeah. didn't open up a labor uh, procedural can of worms. Right. No, and that's a great point, which, which again, makes me sympathetic to the way they did it. If, you know, this is more or less, you know, the way they, uh, you know, a way they could do it anyway. So, And I guess my, part of my problem is if there is a player safety issue, you need to give the players an off season to prepare to play baseball without the sticky stuff. Right. Right. And also from a competitiveness standpoint, now you are changing player skill level in the middle of a season. And I just don't think that is fair for anyone. And leave it to Manfred to do it in such a ham-handed and stupid fashion. But to me, it's just so obvious that you just do it, you know, on November 20th or like on the, 
Monday before Thanksgiving or something. People who care can talk about it at Thanksgiving dinner, and then everyone will forget by the time Christmas comes around, and, and right. it'll be an afterthought by the time spring training starts. And you know, and if they're also going to make changes to the ball to like raise the seams and stuff, um, you know, maybe don't hide yeah. that. you know either but i also feel we talked about the humidor last week my whole thing is consistency i think there needs to be a humidor in every ballpark i think that they if they're gonna do it this is fine if the bright line rule is enforced i just wish it wasn't done this way and if it were me i probably would have come out with an mlb sanctioned method of getting Mm -hmm. grip on the ball um well, but, I think the one thing we can probably agree on, Ben, is at least it's empowering umpires to stop the game and make a big show of things. Yes. On the field. And, and speaking of which, uh, you have given me a perfect segue to, to bring this up. Uh, Tim McClellan, our hometown former Major League umpire, there was a study that came out this week that showed that the sticky stuff on the ball can actually hurt uh, exit velocity and, and distance. So it, it hurts you in the batter's box, which immediately, which immediately reminded me of Tim McClellan throwing George Brett out or calling George Brett out after he hit the home run uh, in, in the postseason against the Yankees because he had pine tar above a certain level on his bat, which actually hurt him uh, in terms of offensive <laughs> performance. But he was still called out for no rule. Uh, whatsoever. Uh, Tim actually trained me to be an umpire, and the way they introduced him at the training was to play video of that moment. Oh, that's um, great. And then he, <laughs> and now here's Tim McClellan, and he hustled out. And so uh, that is my last bit on the pine tar, but I was also thinking, well, if you really want to cut down on home runs, having pine tar on the ball also accomplishes that uh, as well as deadening it. Yeah. So you could, you could, it could be a two for one there uh, for Theo yeah. Epstein and, uh, and Manfred on the, you know, keep the ball in the park front. Right. Yeah. So they, 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 and they just need to convene a committee of uh, guys in like linen suits and boater hats to look at, you know, all technology that was available in 1899 and figure out which ones are acceptable to smear on a baseball and which ones are not. We should be out of that. But anyway, moving on. Uh, so uh, we kind of wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the, what a trade might come to look like for this team or what, you know, some change to the team might look like. And there was a, a comment uh, f- uh, from this, from a Derek Gould article, the John Moseliak said uh, today. And I think Jeff Jones had a tweet that kind of highlighted this as well. And uh, Ben, as a expert in most speak, I want to read this quote to you and then, and then have you kind of unpack this for us. So Mo says, if at some point we look for something outside the organization, comma, we certainly will, comma, but we're not at a point where we're only going to define ourselves by 2021. We're not feeling that pressure if we don't win this year that we're all in trouble. We must understand that we can all do things better. We also understand that we thought what we thought we're going to have because of injuries hasn't worked out. Uh, what do you think, Ben? Well, this is classic John Mosellock. Uh A lot of people... Uh, when I criticized Mike Schilt for saying that on Twitter that John Gant, uh, you know, well, his peripherals are terrible, but that doesn't mean that he won't continue to be good <laughs> in terms of ERA. And people were like, well, 
you know, what would you have him say? And I was like, well, the thing that he says about everyone else, we have too many walks, we need to clean up the walks. And we feel that if John can continue to have even more success, if he reduces his walk rate, which is something that I'm sure they tell him in private, no one would care if, if he mentioned publicly. Um, but so this is actually a much better example of the old, what would you have him say? Okay. Like John Mosellock is not on, on June 19th going to tell Derek Gould, oh my God, this team is terrible because of injuries. Okay. If we do not get help from outside of the organization, we are doomed, 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 I tell you. <laughs> you know, he's not going to do that. He, does, he is not a fan on Twitter who's sending things out into the void in all caps with a bunch of exclamation points, right? And so, you know, what Mosellock is doing is he is signaling that if the health of Michaelis and Flaherty is such that they can anticipate them back shortly after the trade deadline, that reduces the pressure to add a pitcher. What he is also doing is he is signaling uh, that they may not necessarily make a trade this year. Um, and he's doing those things because he doesn't want to be on the record in the media uh, coming off as desperate because then he's going to have a harder time getting a deal where what he gives up is something that he's comfortable with. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to look at the audience for this thing. It's the, the fans who read the newspaper, the media members who read the newspaper and ask him questions, then also other front offices, the players in his dugout. And that's the last audience as well. He is signaling to them that he has confidence in their ability to win uh, as constructed. Yeah. And uh, that is something, again, this kind of ties in with Schilt giving John Gant a vote of confidence, even though he would have the highest walk rate among us starting pitchers who have qualified for the ERA title since Todd Van Poppel in 1994, if he were able to somehow qualify for the ERA title as a starting pitcher this year. Um, I don't know if that's so bad. I had uh, some Todd Van Poppel, uh, uh, you know, rated rookie type cards. Oh, I absolutely was, did too. He was going to totally. be quite a, quite a I never <laughs> really followed up. Did that the, pan out? I don't remember. Yeah, the Todd Van Poppel speculation uh, of the early 90s. What baseball card collecting kid does not remember that? Um, of course, the reason he was able to have that walk rate was because of his hype as a prospect. John Gant has no such future and no such past. Um, so why would we expect there to be any sort of posit positive uh, thing coming after that? Um, but so what you have is Mosellock is signaling to the players who are with the St. Louis Cardinals right now that we believe in them. Now, the whole we aren't, what do you, the whole we aren't going to gauge ourselves just by 2021, that's just a variation on his typical theme that we're not going to mortgage the future to win this year. And that's well, been the mantra since he was hired yeah. in 2008. Now, it, it, he didn't word it particularly well, but, you know, it is what it is. Well, I, I, it is. But I, I think it also shows that he had to he had to stretch this statement a little farther this year than he usually does, because you're right. He makes a, a variation of the statement every year. He's always kind of stretching it out. But if this were dough, you know, we've gotten to that window pane point here where you can kind of see see through it, because 
I think the typical version of this we see is, you know, is, is him saying, well, we're, we'll definitely look at what's available. And if we if we can upgrade our team, we will. But we like what we have. We think the best is yet to come. We've got some guys down on the farm that we think could still contribute this year. That's usually the way that he hedges to make to tell his trade partners, look, I don't have to make a deal with you. I'm not that desperate. I feel like this year. He couldn't quite go there. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody was gonna buy that. Like nobody was gonna buy. Oh, I I like what we have. I think the best is yet. You know, th- that's that's not really gonna float it. So he tr- kind of tried to go to this. Well, we're not gonna only define ourselves by 2021. Which uh, you, you're right. There's a degree of we're not gonna mortgage the farm, but there's also a degree there of like you know, oh, we're going to, we're going to play for next year. And that's where I think, you know, I could call bullshit on this because I just don't think that's how, I don't think that's how they do business. And I think they very much will define themselves by, uh, by well, you don't, you don't sign Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina to a one, to each, to a one year deal. If you don't, if you aren't planning on winning and in 2021. Now that being said, you also don't get rid of Colton Wong and, uh, and install Tommy Edmond at second base. If you are planning on winning it in 2021 because of injuries, you know, they have always layered depth uh, in that way where they're blocking someone who you think is an obvious starter. And, and I'm thinking of like Lance Berkman, uh, you know, in 2012 with Alan Craig, you know, there, there have been these kind of, yeah. Uh, layers uh, Mark Ellis um, with Colton Wong. Even they they will typically do the opposite, where they're they're going to block someone with a better bet, and then if that better bet falls through, they mm-hmm. have that up and comer ready. But I think their biggest problem this year really is 2020 and the loss of the minor league season, because the defining characteristic of the Mosaic era is redefining replacement level for the Cardinals so that it's higher than it is for the league. They've been able to develop guys and plug them in. Uh, And on the pitching front in particular, they have a bunch of guys who have jumped levels uh, or only pitched a little bit or were called up because of COVID in in 2020. And so they basically missed a full year of development. And you're seeing that painfully at the major league level, uh, especially in the last several weeks for the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah. Well, and I... I fully expect this team to acquire some talent. Um, I, I would be shocked if they didn't, to be perfectly honest. And uh, I think, you know, we've talked about uh, starting pitching is probably the most obvious place for them to acquire uh, somebody because you've got, you know, uh, you know, Flaherty, we're hoping comes back, um, you know, and, and, you know, maybe all-star break or, or by the end of July, but, you know, that's a big hole. And then of course, uh, uh, you've already got Gant, uh, in there, you know, essentially in Mike, what would have been Michaelis' spot. Uh, so they, anyway, they, they need that, um, you know, bullpen. I think we're going to talk about how they're trying to address that right now. I'm really kind of starting to believe that they dramatically need a left-handed bat as well. And I was just looking today, did you know that the St. Louis Cardinals are actually a top 10 offense against left-handed pitching? Uh, their offense is pretty strong against left-handed pitching, but then I realized, oh yeah, that's because they have only right-handed starters. They have only right-handed yes. starters. Now, you fair listener might be thinking, but what about the switch hitters? Well, let me tell you something about the switch hitters, all right? 
Uh, Dylan Carlson, uh, his uh, OPS plus, which is basically the same thing as WRC plus, but I was on baseball reference when I grabbed this, uh, versus left-handers, 148, versus right-handers, 101. Uh, Tommy Edmond versus left-handers, 177, versus right-handers, 72. Yeah. Those are, those are dramatic, and I feel like this is something we still kind of do. People look at switch hitters and think, oh, these guys don't have platoon splits. Yes, they do. They always do. And in fact, oftentimes their platoon splits are as bad as a guy who, you know, hits from the same side of the plate all the time. And 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 I, I think that's probably out of line for Tommy Edmund a bit. I haven't looked at his historic ones, but, you know, if you're hitting 177 on one side of the plate and 72 on the other side of the plate, maybe you should just stay on that, you know, one side, same side of the plate. But, um, you know, that's there's a dearth of uh you know, potential from a left-handed hitter in this, in this lineup. So I think definitely an outfielder um, or possibly a kind of multi-position guy who could maybe play, uh, you know, second or a middle infield spot, um, you know, and possibly with outfield as well. But anybody in that kind of mold who's left-handed, I think is somebody that they potentially go after and could really benefit significantly from. So Edmund has always had that split, not as pronounced, uh, but it's been there. And just looking at his career, uh, he's about 10 percentage points below league average against righties. Um, and then he's about 53 percentage points above average against lefties. Of course, this year, you know, he's been, he's more and more unable to defy the gravity of his peripherals, in particular his ground ball uh, predilection. So, you know, how that plays out going forward, who knows? But, I, you know, it's becoming more and more clear that it's it's very difficult to justify playing Edmund uh, in the outfield because he doesn't hit well enough, except, you know, uh, perhaps against lefties. Um, and also to bat him leadoff, except perhaps against lefties, which that was kind of one of the things that people were floating was Bader as leadoff against lefties and then Edmund against righties, but that doesn't solve your problem really. Cause Edmund isn't very good. Um, and so they do have problems. It does kind of make you wonder how much they could really use Colton Wong, um, yeah. <laughs> who tended to do pretty well against righties. Um, you know, that, that bolsters the offense a little bit right there and it allows you to, uh, you know, kind of move Edmund around, uh, and maybe get him some starts uh, elsewhere. So uh, I think you're right. I think they have to find a way uh, to get more left-handed. Um, and when you look at that infield, there's really only one place to do that, and that's second base. Um, and when you look at the outfield, there's more flexibility, um, but you are probably looking at a corner outfield position there. Yeah. Yeah. So the other, the other uh, thing they can do, and, and so I think you and I are both uh, agreed that we're expecting there to be some kind of a trade, but it's, it's probably, you know, it's, it's July 20th right now. I think realistically about a month from now is when I would expect a trade to happen. It's usually between the all-star break and the trade deadline is where the, yeah. the, the bulk of moves. And that's where the, you know, that, that's where the significant moves, you know, tend to be made. Uh, that said, the Cardinals are doing something that I've always been a huge fan of, and that is making insignificant moves for bullpen pieces. 
Um, because I, uh, you know, I, I just feel like picking guys up off the trash heap is how you acquire uh, a successful bullpen. Uh, signing guys to big contracts is not. And I think this has been proven, you know, time and time again. Uh, Andrew Miller, their latest, uh, you know, big free agent. Uh, reliever is not going to produce nearly anything near what the, you know, the value they paid for him. Of course that he was prefaced by Brett Cecil, who was an even bigger, you know, disaster, but you just go on and on big contracts for, for relievers don't make sense. The way you get these guys is you go through the, you know, again, you go through the garbage bin. So just in the last week, they picked up a Wade LeBlanc who had been um, released and passed through waiver or passed through waivers from the, uh, 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 Orioles. And then uh, Brandon Dixon, um, who had previously been in the organization, and I believe he had been in Japan or Korea most recently. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So this is I, I shared on Twitter the uh, the, uh, the Mr. Burns from the uh, uh, Simpsons baseball uh, softball episode when he's directing Smithers to scour the American League, the National League, the Negro Leagues. This is very much what I envision going on in the Cardinals front office. But but I'm 100% here for it. And I, I just wanted to remind people of a few uh, guys of recent vintage. Uh, John Brebbia was the first one who, who came to mind for me. You know, John Brebbia is a guy who had had bounced around, had been an independent ball, you know, fairly recently from when the Cardinals signed him. Um, Tyler Webb, who, you know, has obviously kind of played his way out of uh, the staff again. But, you know, for a couple seasons, he was a useful piece in that St. Louis bullpen. Uh, he was a, a waiver claim. He, he'd been put on waivers by another club. Uh, 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 Nabil Krismat, who, uh, you know, contributed last year. Again, he was kind of a, a minus free agent signing. Matt Bowman was another guy I thought of. Matt Bowman was a Rule 5 guy yep. that they brought in. And I don't know, are there others you can think of? That was kind of my off the top of my head list from the last, you know, five to ten years. No, I and I think no, I think that's a that's a pretty good list, um, and that's what you really want. You want to just kind of find that uh, reliever lightning in a bottle. And um, one of the things that Mosaloc has done is he has really uh, allowed those relievers to fail and then get rid of them, yeah. and that as well. Um, and also some of the more proven ones, you know, like a Ryan mm -hmm. Franklin, uh, yeah. comes to mind, Brett Cecil comes to mind. Um, right. but you know, when you get those guaranteed contracts, you have to give them every opportunity. When you sign them as a minor league free agent, you can just cycle through if it's getting ugly. Um, Absolutely. and so that is the reality of being a reliever in, in major league baseball nowadays. And it's also, you know, you've seen some of the coverage in Sports Illustrated with the the mental strain it can have on some of these guys, and so oh, it's terrible for them as human beings. Yes, it, it destroys them. But as a baseball fan, it, it helps my <laughs> it helps my team. So as long as I don't read those Sports Illustrated profiles, I'm still 100 percent in favor of this. Uh, you know, Bud Norris is another guy that I just thought yes. of in the last handful of years. I mean, Wade LeBlanc is a very kind of Bud Norris e kind of pickup that the card you know Cardinals did. Guy yeah. who's had fairly long career, actually used you know used to be a starter LeBlanc more recently and such, but you know, kind of winding down. You can you know you pick these guys up, and the thing is, uh, there's probably five times as many of these guys that I can't even remember that they picked up and nothing came of them. But the cost is so low. Well, it's like uh, you know, Rich Hill. Nothing came of him. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, wait, never mind. Yeah, Not with yeah. the Cardinals anyway. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, but like the, I really like the profile of a uh, former starter who just isn't good yeah. enough to be a starter anymore because they usually, yeah. uh, they, they can gain a little bit of velocity on the fastball when they move to the bullpen. And they can also uh, pare down what they're using uh, in terms of pitches and focus on their best pitches. And, and that can often uh, make someone uh, a bit of a more of a weapon out of the bullpen than they were uh, as a starter in the years uh, before. Uh, uh, Julian Tavares uh, very much oh, comes yeah. to mind in that yep. regard where La Russa and Duncan like basically went out and they were like, we want this guy and he's going to be our setup guy. And everyone was like, mm-hmm. what? And then yeah. he went out and had some very good seasons for the Cardinals before he broke his hand um you know uh and that profile i i like a lot and i and i do really like uh giving that type of a pitcher an opportunity and and hopefully leblanc uh uh takes the opportunity that the cardinals are giving him and runs with it because he needs it for his career and the cardinals need it for their season yeah absolutely and i think there's there's another reason you're seeing this kind of move right now and i think the other thing that you're going to see is I think you are going to see Zach Thompson come up from, um, from Memphis um, probably sometime around the all-star break or before that trade deadline, because that's sort of the other place that, you know, relievers can come from is they can come from your, uh, your prospects who are not quite ready to take on a full-time role, especially if it's a rotation role. And, and yeah, if they can plug in uh, let's say a LeBlanc, and they can, and, and someone like Thompson can come up, uh, this bullpen actually might be all right, you know, and, and maybe one of the guys that's been up there who's been, you know, a little underwhelming can, um, you know, can kind of uh, improve enough. And, you know, that, that starts to look like a bullpen. And then when you're going out and you're making whatever trade you're going to make, you, you don't have to piss away resources on a, a reliever, which is what right. you're doing anytime you, you trade for a reliever. You can go out and get a Mujica type. Uh, who you're not giving up a lot for um, if they're able to get that internal support. Um, I really feel like the Cardinals were ready to go to Thompson, but his early struggles in Memphis uh, caused them to decide that they're going to let him work through that in AAA. And and I don't know if you saw this, but he hit a triple today in his game. Oh, did he? Yeah, but he had a bases loaded triple. So at this point, he you know he might be a better hitter than Lane Thomas. I think that's worth um, you know considering as well. So maybe he could come up in a dual role. Yeah, he could he could uh, do the Otani. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he could spend some time as the fourth. Well, n- not as a starting outfielder, but he could spend some time in the outfield and on the mound. Uh, it would also be really fun. It would allow Schilt to do some Whitey Herzog pitching changes where. I guess with the three batter rule, it's not quite as necessary as it once was. Um, the three but, batter rule has a cut back on the Waxahachie swap, which is both yes. one of my favorite moves and my absolute favorite name for a move. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I, you're right. I, I think uh, it will be interesting uh, to see how the bullpen comes together and really helps focus uh, how long the shopping list is uh, for yeah. Zaylock Gershon company. Well, and I guess partly I bring this up and I think this is a reaction to 
probably Twitter specifically and what I see. But, but, you know, anytime they announce a move like, you know, signing LeBlanc, I see people on Twitter who are like, oh, great. Yeah, this is the move that we need, which is just such a dumb position to take because, you know, first of all, like, they, you know, they this is not the big move. They don't expect this to be the big move. So no one, no one thinks that. But secondly, like we need to cheer these moves. They should be signing as many, you know, guys off of waivers and guys that have been in, you know, Korea and, you know, whatever other far flung place. Like, you know, again, the, the, Trash pile is good because all those guys that they sign that don't amount to anything, you will never hear about them again. It doesn't matter. But, you know, if one out of every five or one out of every 10, you know, gets in there and can be, you know, maybe the fourth or fifth link in your bullpen chain, that is hugely valuable. And when you look back at Cardinals teams, especially, but it really baseball teams in general and how good bullpens are constructed, those are the pieces you find there. So I'm, I very much encourage them doing that, but uh, we should probably uh, keep things moving here. And it being father's day, we do have a box score of your, uh, we were looking for something that had a bit of a, a father's day tie into it. And so we are going to be looking at the game from September 10th, 1963. Now you might be saying what, why that particular game? Well, uh, the, uh, St. Louis Cardinals, this was 1963, was the final year of Stan Musial's career. And the night before, uh, or the early that morning, it's not clear exactly when, uh, he became a grandfather. So this was his final season that, uh, that he was playing. Uh, he was 42 years old, and uh, uh, he became a grandfather that night and then played in uh, – this particular game. And by the reports, it sounded like he was, he was at the hospital, didn't he? Like he was up all night. Did you read get that? Yeah, it, that that's what it, that's, and you never know in this day and age how dramatized it was. Right. right. Uh, but that's certainly uh, what the, uh, the news articles made it sound like. Yeah, and in fairness, I think when a father was at the hospital for the birth in 1963, it was a lot of like cigar smoking and fist bumping your buddies and, you know, making comments to passing nurses that we would probably not be okay with today as a society. So it was a little different, but it still sounds like he was he was there all night. Um, so Ben, should we uh, should we dive into this game? Yes. Um, so so again, I mentioned this game came on September 10th. Uh, this was a game against the Chicago Cubs. Uh, it was played at, I always call it Sportsman's Park, although baseball reference here calls it Bush Stadium 1 because this was after the point where they started calling it Bush Stadium. Yeah. To me, this is Sportsman's Park. Uh, the Cardinals were uh, 85 and 61 coming into this game. They were three behind the Dodgers. They would never catch, they wouldn't catch the Dodgers that year, it would finish second in the National League. Uh, the Cubs were uh, 74 and 71. So uh, what do you know? The Cubs were uh, mediocre and forgettable. Who, who could have predicted? <laughs> uh, in terms of guys playing in this game, Ben, who were some that you wanted to highlight? Uh, well, the thing that immediately uh, jumped out at me was the leadoff hitter for the Chicago Cubs, uh, who is very well known to Cardinals fans today. Uh, he's a right fielder. Uh, at the time, named Lou Brock. 
and I thought that was a fun uh, little wrinkle that uh, this was before Brock came over uh, for Brolio uh, in the now famous or infamous, depending on what team you're a fan of, uh, trade. And so I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, I also enjoyed uh, just overall we had um, Ron Santo at third base for the Cubs and Ken Boyer at third base for the Cardinals. Uh, two players who I feel should be in the Hall of Fame, uh, and, and I know should I should I should rephrase that uh, should have been voted in by the writers um, because they I believe they're Hall of Fame worthy players, and and I thought it was fun that that they were both in the lineup as well. And another uh, fun one was uh, Ernie Banks at first base uh, for the Cubs. Uh, I thought that that was a fun little bit of trivia as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, um, well, why don't we uh, dive in? And we didn't even get to our pitching matchup here. Uh, for the Cubs, we had uh, Glenn Hobie on the mound. I could not tell you anything at all about Glenn Hobie. Could you, Ben? Uh, no, I don't know no. the first thing about him. Uh, but no, I know no. a lot about the other starter. Yeah, yeah. Starting for the St. Louis Cardinals was uh, Bob Gibson. So <laughs> this is also a more interesting game in that in that respect we should say you know we we have done a lot of like kind of games from the 90s and things like that and eras of that we really watched personally this is of course well before your time or my time so you know i know these guys kind of from uh you know um kind of clip montages and you know from from reading uh the uh the great uh book on the 64 cardinals and things like that that's where i feel like i know these guys from but these weren't teams that i i you know certainly watched so um and really the action of this game comes in the uh in the first couple innings so it's pretty much over after that but uh the the game uh begins with a gibson on the mound lou brock actually leads off with a, a single but then uh, Gibson gets uh, the next three in order, and that's the end of that. Uh, ben, do you want to take it away with the, the bottom of the first and the Cardinals coming to bat? Uh, well, you, you have uh, Javier strikes out. Then you have uh, a single by Grote, and that brings up uh, Musial, and that's when he homered, uh, driving in Grote and giving the, the cards uh, the early lead. Yeah, so it's and, and again that that's the moment that really makes this game a standout is that you know Stan Musial homers in his first game as a grandfather in his first at bat <laughs> as a grandfather and we could see from here on just his uh, second pitch that he saw as a grandfather. Yes. So <laughs> so up all night the night before becomes a, a grandfather rolls in hits a home run just yes. a incredibly incredibly Stan Musial kind of moment. <laughs> Uh, so, oh, I'm sorry. Did you throw something else in there, Ben? Oh, no, I was just going to say it is like something out of a, you know, out of a movie. It, it might be rejected if it were on a television show and proposed in the script. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, uh, so at that point, the Cardinals are up two to nothing in the bottom of the first, uh, second inning comes along, uh, Bob Gibson issues a walk to, uh, Ellis Burton, uh, then gets a double play ball and uh, a flyout from Ernie Banks. Um, then in the second, uh, the Cardinals uh, score some more runs. Ben, you want to take that one? Well, uh, the the bottom of the second, uh, Kurt Flood led things off. Uh, he hit a single. Uh, then uh, Tim McCarver uh, 
made the first out of the inning with a flyout. Then George Altman walked, uh, which put two runners on for the pitcher, Bob Gibson. And then uh, what would have undoubtedly brought about commentary about his uh, athletic prowess and skill, Bob Gibson homered, helping his own cause in the game, a three-run blast uh, that uh, put the Cardinals up uh, by five. Uh, After that, uh, there was a flyout by Javier. Groat doubled, uh, and Musial was not done knocking in runs. He singled, and Groat scored. Uh, and then uh, after a walk, uh, Bill White grounded out to end the uh, home half of the second. Yeah. So at this point, uh, the Cardinals were ahead uh, six to two, uh, or sorry, six six to zero. They would go on to win uh, eight to zero and lay on a few more. Were there any moments from the rest of the game you wanted to touch on, Ben? If not, there were a couple things from the total I wanted to to mention. Um, I I enjoyed the uh, Tim McCarver RBI single knocking in Kenny Boyer just for the historical kind of context there. Um, the you you mentioned the double play that Gibson. Uh, induced to Boyer at third base. And it reminded me of a, an anecdote that Mike Shannon is fond of saying uh, that he, uh, he doesn't care what he, he told Shannon, I don't care what you do at third base, uh, just field it and throw it to second when there's a runner on first, because apparently <laughs> when Gibson would get a runner on first, he was very adept at inducing ground balls to third base. Uh, and then as Shannon tells it, he then induced like five ground balls for double plays in his first game or something uh, playing behind Gibson. Uh, but that just made me chuckle when I was going through the play by play that the Cubs got a runner on first and then Gibson promptly induced a double play via ground ball to third. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's great. And so you had, uh, so of course, and, and Bob Gibson homering in this game too, is also just quintessentially Bob Gibson, as is the fact that he uh, pitched a uh, complete game shutout as well. So he gave up uh, six hits and, and three walks. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun game to look back on. Definitely most notable for uh, Stan Musial's uh home run immediately after becoming a grandfather, but also just a, a fun Cardinals team. You know, a lot of uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's more or less the team that would be that world series winner in 64. So you see a lot of those, a lot of those guys here. And, you know, and even if you're a Cubs fan, I mean, there's, you know, God, these, those sixties Cubs teams really had some good players on them. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's amazing. They didn't make, well, I was, I was about to say, it's amazing. They didn't make more of it than they did. But then I remembered I was talking about the Cubs and I realized <laughs> it's the least amazing thing in the world. That's exactly what you would. Uh, it's very common. Would, yes. Extremely <laughs> common. It was extremely common. So, uh, so anyway, Ben, uh, I think we've got another week until the next off day, something like that. Um, what are you going to be looking for as we move forward? Uh, well, you know, we talked about it a little bit uh, on the last episode, but the the uh, schedule for the St. Louis Cardinals uh, coming up is not very strong, and they really need to do more than just keep their head above water right now right now they're uh three three and a half we'll see how this game goes they'll be three or four games back probably in the division at the end of play today um but the schedule coming up they have two games at detroit then they host pittsburgh for four games then they host arizona 
for three. And Arizona has been so historically bad on the road that there are actually blog posts being written about how the team's Twitter account is handling all of the losses. So having them uh, come to Bush is an opportunity. Uh, then they play at Colorado, and Colorado has been a lot better at home than on the road, which is typical, but Colorado is by no means a good team. Uh, and so uh, after that, then they have to go to San Francisco, and then they go to the Cubs, and then it's the All-Star break. So before that trip to San Francisco, San Francisco has been very good this year. The Cubs are a good team, uh, shaping up to be a good team as well. Uh, but in the interim, they have an opportunity to maybe close some ground with the Cubs because of the quality of their opponents. And uh, I'm going to be watching <laughs> to see if they're able to do that because that I think also could play a big part in how they approach the trade deadline as well, how they're able to perform against some of these bad teams in the next week plus. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good thing to look out for. I'm going to one of the uh, Arizona games in uh, St. Louis. So, I certainly hope the Cardinals win that one for my own entertainment. Uh, you know, I am going to be looking, and this is outside of the Cardinals, but I'm going to keep watching Albert Pujols. He hit his 673rd home run today. Um, uh, Zips projects uh, 10 more out of him this season, and that's actually at their the rate that they expect for him to hit, which is actually below the rate he's been hitting at. So. Um, so, you know, let's say he matches what Zips kind of expects for him rest of season. Um, you know, that would put him at uh, 683 home runs as a, as a free agent going into next year. Uh, I just, I just continue to think, and I would absolutely not have thought this at the beginning of the season or really much of a point up until now that he's a little bit interesting in terms of next season. Does somebody sign him particularly with, the national league having that designated hitter kind of coming around, you know, I mean, I think he's going to be at the absolute fringe of what you could uh, want production wise for the kind of player that he's going to be, which is probably going to be, you know, mostly a, you know, mostly a pinch hitting type guy, but you know, maybe a guy who's, who's uh, as a DH role is, is, you know, getting at least platoon at bats as a DH, et cetera. But 683 is pretty close to 700, and I think he would really like to hit that 700th home run. And uh, I think there's franchises that might say, you know what, like this is, you know, this could be a pretty nice moment for us to, you know, to book and have here. Are the Cardinals one of those franchises? Uh, I tend to think they're not, but, um, you know, I still think that maybe there's a way that this this still could be something that happened in St. Louis. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to see him there. I know many of us would love to see him, you know, somehow end his career there. There was no fit this year. Uh, there was no fit to match what the Dodgers had. So as soon as the Dodgers had a platoon role where he could play first base in platoon, that absolutely was a non-starter in St. Louis. So yeah. I don't think that reflects on how much the team wanted him or how much he wanted to be in St. Louis. Just absolutely wasn't a fit. Well, next year, if now every single National League team has a designated hitter position, Maybe it's something that they look at, um, but even if it's not with the Cardinals, uh, it'd be interesting to see. Um, I, it'd be fun to see him, you know, hit 700 home runs. But it's fun now just seeing him, you know, playing uh, playing well. I don't think he's actually playing better than he was in Anaheim, but he's in a better role. He's in a role that's a little bit more suited to his ability, mm -hmm. and he's on a good team. So him not producing at a level that people expect isn't part of a narrative about why this team is a failure. So it's like you're getting to see him uh, around success and, and, and winning 
And uh, I just, we saw that for so many years. I love, I love seeing that. So it's, it's nice seeing that again. And I'll, I'll just kind of be continuing to watch how that, how that goes going forward. Uh, ben, do you have uh, an, a recommendation for the off day for folks to check out? I do. And um, this is actually the piece that kind of got the idea for us doing recommendations uh, in my head. Um, and it's a little bit of an older article from a few weeks ago uh, by Eno Saris, or excuse me, Eno Saris at The Athletic. And it's an article about the quality of major league bats and how uh, there is a huge discrepancy in each shipment that a player gets in the quality. And it can impact how far the ball goes. And it was something that after you read it, it was like, well, of course that would be the case, but I didn't appreciate it until I read the article and the reporting is really good. The writing's really good. Uh, you know, they interview a guy who has his own lab now who used to do quality control for a bat company. The whole thing I just think is really well done and definitely worth reading. The athletic is a subscription service. Um, I think it has a lot of good writing in it and I recommend it. Uh, you know, uh, Saris is, high probably at the top of the list for why i would recommend subscribing as we mentioned earlier he broke he broke the spin rate story into the open uh, a few years back and he does great ball player interviews uh, and he approaches topics in interesting and fun ways and this article on bats is no exception i just thought it was really really good and something new that I just hadn't really thought of before. And I highly recommend it. I'm going to have to check that one out. I'm an athletic subscriber, but I actually didn't, didn't read that one. And again, kind of tying back to what we talked about at the beginning of this episode about how this entire sport is stuck in 19th century technology. They're, they're swinging sticks that have been whittled out of trees, folks. Like that's what they're, that's what they're doing out there. <laughs> but they're like, no longer what? using ash because the right. emerald ash borer has killed them all. So now <laughs> they've moved on to harder wood. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, it's one of those you say, I haven't really thought about that before. But yeah, of course, they'd be different there. Every tree is different, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> well, um, and, oh, and go ahead. just the difference from a craftsman to craftsman who's working on it. Like, you know, yeah. it's just it's fascinating to think about. Oh, that is fascinating. Uh, I did actually one of the few things we did last year during COVID on our way back from uh, the uh, national park out, uh, the Smoky Mountain National Park, we stopped through Louisville and we did a like masked up tour of the Louisville Slugger uh, factory there, which is a lot of fun. Um, so my recommendation, I'm recommending a book again. I think I just, I'm going to keep recommending books. So people think that I'm a person who reads a lot, which, which I'm not exactly. Although this is um, a book of uh, uh, peanuts cartoons. So it's not, uh, it's not quite, uh, you know, the, the most, uh, I guess, highbrow uh, of selections. And uh, Ben, I'm showing you the cover right here. So this is a, a collection called Sandlot Peanuts. And I kind of became aware of this through Twitter. There's a couple different Twitter accounts that will tweet uh, like old Peanuts cartoons. And and I was not like, I mean, I always liked Peanuts fine. You know, I would kind of read it when it was in the funny pages back when I was a kid and younger when it was still published. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, see the Christmas special and things like that. And, you know, I always kind of liked it okay, but I was not like an obsessive about it or anything. But seeing all these folks on Twitter who post these old strips and i'm just like god this is really good and just like consistently seeing like really high quality ones 
And um, of course, he, he wrote so many that are set on the baseball diamond. And those uh, I've always kind of especially liked. And so I got tipped off to this book. Um, it was actually, this book was published in 1977. So it's it's pretty old. And there was actually, you know, probably, what, another 30 years of, or 20 some, 20 years of Peanuts after this. Um, but it's a collection of all these, you know, kind of baseball moments. Uh, very, very funny. But you, you can also tell that Charles Schultz was a real baseball fan and he really got the game because just a lot of the, the the jokes and the nuances of it, you know, he, he really got. So I think as a baseball fan, I think he really appreciate it. Uh, Joe Gergiola writes the intro to this book. So again, a St. Louis native and former Cardinal player, a lot of reasons there. And frankly, I have found this to be the perfect book to keep like on the coffee table while I'm watching a game to like flip through a couple strips during the commercial break or something. That seems like a good way to digest this. So anyway, if you're at all a fan of, of, uh, of peanuts, uh, this, uh, sandlot peanuts, like I said, it's, it's out of print. It was published a long time ago, but you can find it fairly easily used, um, you know, online or at a bookstore. Um, so I'd recommend picking that up. Ben, uh, anything else before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. Uh, we are of course recording this on Sunday night while the Cardinals are playing. So if something happens yet in the game, understand we haven't been able to address it. Uh, right now, they're down one to nothing. So hopefully, uh, once we sign off, we get to go watch a comeback victory. Yeah, I think we should go do that. So anyway, thanks again, everybody. You've been listening to Cardinals Off Day. We will see you on the next Off Day.